Former President Donald Trump claimed that Black people like him because he has been indicted and because he faces discrimination in the legal system, which is something he says that we, they, can relate to. Also in the news today, Nikki Haley suffered a devastating blow over the weekend. She lost in her own home state uh, the presidential election. She lost by 20 points in her home state to Donald Trump. However, Nikki Haley has promised to press on. And Rona McDaniel, who was elected as the chair in 2017 to run the Republican National Committee, says she will step down on March 8th. She is doing so because of pressure from Donald Trump, who wants to install his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, as the co-chair of the RNC. And since announcing his bid for candidacy, Donald Trump has made no bones about his fascination with Russia. He's lavished praise on Putin. He's refused to stand up to the Russian president. And he has not denounced Russia for the killing of the activist Alexei Navalny. And speaking of Russia, they are back at it again, disseminating disinformation in advance of the 2024 election. They're using fake online accounts and bots to damage President Joe Biden and other Democrats who are running for office this year. Uh, the dissemination attacks is part of a continuing effort by Moscow to undercut American aid to the Ukraine and to build support for Donald Trump. And the Supreme Court today were skeptical about laws passed in Florida and Texas uh, designed by these states uh, and their legislatures to give more uh, cover or to give cover, that is, for conservative groups Essentially, these states and their legislators don't like uh, the social media companies have some discretion in what they will allow to be disseminated on their sites. And the Supreme Court seemed to suggest that these laws are, are running afoul of the First Amendment. We won't get a ruling likely until June, but not likely that the laws in Texas and Florida will be upheld by this very conservative Supreme Court. And we are running out of time yet again. The House, because of its insistence on putting into uh, bills around funding our government, are insisting on policy demands related to the LGBTQ community, uh, abortion, and other uh, issues related to immigration. And because of these extreme proposals by Republicans, it's quite possible that the government will shut down unless some kind of compromise can be reached. And it's interesting to note that even when Democrats capitulated to Republicans' uh, demands as it relates to immigration, they still refuse to pass basic immigration reform legislation. And those that are critical of Joe Biden and the way he's handling the Israel-Hamas uh, conflict may be happy to know that it looks like some additional hostages may be released as a result of behind the scene conversations and negotiations happening uh, by uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who over the weekend talked about some of these uh, negotiations that are happening and the prospect that there could be at least a temporary ceasefire and the release of hostages. And in a poll that was conducted by KBLA during, uh, as a part of our whole Justice Climate Initiative, this is a year-long, uh, multi-million dollar initiative. KBLA is focused on uh, advancing issues of social uh, justice related to climate change. 
Uh, they conducted a survey recently of African-Americans in Los Angeles, and some of the key findings are that a significant majority of Black voters believe that climate change is an extremely or very serious issue facing Los Angeles County, that Black uh, and African-American voters are highly cognizant of issues related to climate change and its disparate impacts on communities of color, and that African-American voters see a strong link between issues of climate change and environmental harm and civil rights. Throughout this year, we're gonna be conducting interviews of those working on the front lines of climate justice and social justice issues and looking at that intersectionality. I've done a lot of shows on issues around safe water, uh, chemical plants that are strategically placed in black neighborhoods and how black folks, uh, as we think about civil rights and social justice issues, uh, it's very clear from this new uh, report that issues of climate change are high on the list of African-Americans, at least those in Los Angeles, and I would say across the country, uh, as we think about climate change and its intersectionality with social justice issues. So uh, a lot more coming on those issues uh, right here on KBLA across all of the shows on our station. We are leading the way uh, in raising awareness about climate issues and their connection to social justice issues. You are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. Uh, and this is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time, and this is the hour where we dig a little deeper, where we go behind those headlines, and we bring you those stories that people are talking about. Uh, and oftentimes, those are stories that have great resonance with Black women in particular. We've been doing a lot of studies uh, looking at how certain issues, issues around health, uh, issues around economics impact Black women. And we're doing that because this is an election year and Black women are some of the biggest uh, voters, the most reliable voting Black in the Democratic Party. So we want to make sure we're addressing those issues that really impact Black women. And if it impacts Black women, then it impacts Black men and Black families by definition. And so this story today is about uh, it's a sad story. It's a horrifying story for me. Uh, a new report out that says that Black women are six times more likely to be killed than white women uh, in the United States. This, uh, again, troubling new data is revealing this. This paper was published in a medical journal that analyzed homicide rates of Black women ages 25 to 44 across 30 states. Uh, this data was collected between 1999 and 2020 by the Center, uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Vital Statistics System. Now, the researchers involved with this project did not identify the specific causes behind the staggering differences, but their paper, their report does provide information that you know, we should all be aware of uh, that impact these numbers. And some of those points outlined in the paper are things like structural racism, poverty, educational attainment, and employee. Also, the report tells us that states with a larger share of low-income households, where people tend to live closer together, that they had the highest disparities of homicide rates. Um, again, just some really horrific and troubling data about uh, Black women and homicide rates. Uh, in this hour, we're going to talk to uh, two women, one who is a principal uh, reporter of this uh, new report out, and another woman who's working in the community doing domestic violence work. Uh, get their take on the startling uh, 
report these startling statistics, and again, ask what it is we can all do to protect the lives of Black women. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. A report published last week in the Lancet Medical Journal analyzed homicide rates of Black women ages 25 to 44 across 30 states. And there are some startling statistics, uh, primarily that Black women are six times more likely to be killed than white women. Uh, The principal author of that report is joining us, Dr. Bernadine Waller. She is the lead author and psychiatry research fellow at Columbia University. And also joining us is Danielle Williams, She's a faith-based community organizer and educator. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Waller, and welcome, Danielle. Let's start with you, uh, Dr. Waller. Why this report, and were you at all surprised by the stats, the the, the just shocking statistics about six women being, or Black women being six times more likely to be killed than white women? So why the report? I actually um, am focused specifically on studying intimate partner violence victimization. Um, And my focus really is specifically on Black women. And there are so few scholars across the country that really focus their research and their scholarship on the needs and what's going on among Black women. And so when I first joined Uh, Columbia University, I reached out to colleagues in the School of Public Health um, and asked them, let's see if we can pull together an epidemiological study to find out what's going on among Black women, um, because the latest study that we had had come out six years prior. And so that was conducted um, by the CDC back in 2017. And so we decided to look at the same similar data set that the CDC looked at. So we looked at CDC Wonder data, which is publicly available data set to find out exactly uh, what the trends were and what happened among homicides in the midst of the pandemic. And this allowed us to find out what was going on across a 22 year span. And no one had ever conducted um, this kind of research um, to to extend 22 years and also include the COVID-19 pandemic. So the six times more likely to be killed, I know the report, at least the the article I read about the report said you did not try to address the causation, right? So you don't make any assumptions about why these women or why Black women are killed. Is that accurate? That is somewhat accurate. So that is the next paper that we're actually working on right now to find out what structural inequities are actually underpinning these higher higher deaths. However, what we did find is that um, the states in the United States that had the lowest inequities of wealth um, also reflected the highest inequities as it relates to homicide. And so I think I was most surprised Um, I was expecting, let me kind of back into that. I was expecting round about three times the rate, because if you're looking specifically at intimate partner violence victimization, even within New York City, we're looking at 
Black women, unfortunately, hovering around that three times the rate, we decided to zone out and find out what was happening across all homicides. And so we looked at um, all homicides and not just intimate partner violence, and we saw that that rate doubled. So it wasn't just on average of three times. It's on average of six times. And for me, as a Black woman who studies intimate partner violence victimization, um, to find out that our homicide rate was so high was heartbreaking. Um, and then in states like Wisconsin, to reflect for every one white woman that's murdered, 20 Black women are murdered. That, and, and then if you think about the cascade effects, like what that means to us in the Black community. In the Black community, is mostly women are the single head of household. Women are the ones who keep the family together. And so if you are ripping apart that key figure within that Black family, what's happening to the children? What's happening to um, that woman's uh, siblings? What's happening to that woman's parents? And who's taking care of the children after these women are murdered? And then what are we doing? What are we as a Black community doing um, to work towards solving this problem? So, Danielle, let me ask you, you work in communities, you're a community organizer, you work with faith-based organizations. Were you shocked by the findings of this study? Um, I uh, I actually wasn't shocked by this, the findings of this study. Um, and so I work with <clears throat> Connect NYC. And I run the Connect Space program where we work with our faith communities to address domestic violence. Um, I wasn't shocked by the results of the study because um, I actually remember during the pandemic, um, the numbers rising up. And I remember there was a coalition, it's called the Black Femicide Coalition on Facebook. And every day, they would post stories from across the country of black femicide. And the overwhelming majority of those cases were domestic violence. And I applaud the work of black femicide for really shining a light on uh, a topic that doesn't get dis discussed, but that so many black women are impacted by. And um, so, you know, when I saw this study, and I had no idea that Dr. Waller was working on it, um, so I was excited to see that. But I was like, okay, great, because um, it is important for the academic institutions to really shine that light. I remember when uh, Black Femicide was doing their work, and uh, they had a different number, but they said like every six hours a Black woman was killed based on the numbers that they were pulling from newspapers, right? So for an academic institution to, and people said, oh, that lady's in there. She don't know what she's talking about. That's mm -hmm. a lie. That's not happening in our community. Um, so thank you, Dr. Waller, for shining that light and saying, actually, this is what's going on. Hey, let me ask you this, uh, Dr. Waller. We know people kill people that they're in proximity to. So I would suspect that most of these Black women are killed by other Black people. And if we're talking about domestic violence, it's probably Black men. And again, it's not that Black people kill people more than other racial groups. It's just that people kill people they are in proximity to. But did you look at all at who, you know, who's killing us? Who's killing Black women? 
Who is killing Black women? If we're looking statistically speaking, one out of every two women who is murdered is murdered by her intimate partner. And so about half of these murders are their intimate partner, someone who they have dated, someone who they have been married to and are going through a divorce, um, someone with whom they've been cohabitating. And so it, it runs the gamut. We also know that of the 50% of like literally, and, and unfortunately the statistics from the CDC that were released in 2021 actually only capture the homicides up to 2016 and 2017. So as of 2016, 2017, the data that was collected at that time frame, but not reported out until 2022, it states that 53% of Black women were murdered by their intimate partner. I am guesstimating that that number is significantly higher for two reasons. One, there is significant underreporting, right? So we in the Black community always say what goes on in this house, and everyone can finish that statement if you're Black, right? What goes on in this house stays in this house. And so we are also bound by cultures of privacy. Like that is a cultural script. That is how we are trained. That is how we are groomed within the Black community. And our silence is literally killing us. Um, I can also say having studied the other side of um, intimate partner violence victimization, understanding perpetration, we also have um, um, un on inequities as it relates to education. And so what we're finding is Black women are also the most educated population right now, the most educated segment in the country. And that is not working for us as it relates to having relationships and healthy relationships with our Black men, right? Because now I'm frustrated because I have a woman who's out earning me. I have a woman who's more educated than me. I have a woman who is in a position of power. And now that woman is expected to come back into that household and for lack of a better term, code switch, right? She's now expected to be subservient. So you're saying being smart can be deadly. Being educated can be deadly if you are a black woman. And for my good friend, Dr. Hill, who's still with us uh, quietly and silently, the culture of silence, we were talking about it in the first hour as it relates to black, as it relates to how we talk about sexual harassment and sexual assault in our community, how there is a culture of silence, particularly when the perpetrator is a black man, because we have been you know, uh, indoctrinated with this notion that we should not call the police on black men. We should not, you know, out, quote unquote, out black men because they already suffer enough in our society. So we as women have been really trained not to speak out, even if it is something as serious as domestic violence beyond even, say, harassing conduct, if it's physical violence. So all of that working together, as you said, recalls results in this underreporting that you talked about. And I would imagine, the, and I don't know if this is true, you can tell me, do the majority of Black women in this country, are they in intimate partner relationships with Black men? Even though I know there's interracial couples, et cetera, but. Now, interestingly enough, um, when there are interracial relationships, intimate partner victimization is higher. Um, unfortunately, the homicide rate is not necessarily reflective of that. 
So that they're more likely to experience intimate partner violence. They may not necessarily be more likely to be murdered by mm -hmm. that, okay. by a person in a different, uh, of a different culture, of a different ethnicity. So they may have violence, but not the murder rate. Because they're not, not likely the murder to be rate. Yeah. Murder. Yeah. Uh, Danielle, let me ask you, in the work you're doing in the community, in a place like New York City, I, Dr. Wilder talked about education. And we always hear these horrific stories about, you know, how difficult it is for women to get out of violent relationships. I think the stat used to be like, it takes seven times for a woman to try to leave a violent relationship before she actually does. Are we making any progress with that number? Or are you finding that women are getting out of violent relationships sooner? It's not taking seven times. Maybe it's, you know, the third time or the fourth time. Um. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I can really answer that one. Um, Based on what you observe, not like science. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would say I would say that it's important to look at what are the challenges to leaving, and it's important for our governments and our communities to do the best to alleviate those challenges. So whether it is housing, um, coming up with a safety plan, um, but also having culturally competent support. When Black women are calling DV hotlines or, uh, you know, not everyone calls the police, but if people call the police, are they receiving that culturally competent assistance to help them to get to where they need to go? So, you know, um, there is great opportunity and responsibility for our local governments to invest um, with their budgets, because it is a moral document, to invest in these services that can make it easier for women to leave safely. And then, you know, the other piece of the work is uh, community because, you know, we talked about this culture of silence. We have to call it out. We have to call it out. You know, when um, Jonathan, the whole Jonathan Major situation came out, I, I watched videos online, I'm on social media and everything like that. And people were saying, hmm, wouldn't have happened if he was with a black woman? And it was a badge of honor. So you're saying that a black woman would not have reported. And we're celebrating that. And we're saying you should have been in with a black woman instead. And there are also people saying, that out. but what about Daniel, there are also people saying that he was only being targeted because he was a black man. So we also hear that argument often denial that black about black men as if black men who are called out or held accountable are somehow being differentiated or being othered or being discriminated against because they're black. Uh, when we come forward, I want to continue that conversation and talk about the attitudes of black women that we are supposed to be so strong that we can endure anything and that we ourselves oftentimes are our biggest impediment in terms of trying to get the government help that you talked about, Danielle. More than this very interesting uh, conversation and startling statistics about black women and homicide when we come forward. KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. A new report out says black women are six times more likely to be killed than white women. Also, this report says approximately 45% of black women experience stalking, physical, and sexual violence. 
uh, in their lifetimes, with an estimated 51% of Black female adult homicides being related to intimate partner violence. Uh, my guest today, Dr. Bernadine Wowler, who is a lead author and psychiatry research fellow at Columbia. Uh, she's the lead author of that report, as well as Danielle Williams is here. She's a faith-based uh, organizer and educator. And Dr. Waller says that 51% number uh, is probably underreported and that, you know, there is a huge issue in our society related in part to structural racism and inequities that are driving this horrific uh, number. Dr. Waller, do you want to talk about the attitudes that you know, that this, this racist trope is really what it is, that somehow Black women that we're immune to pain, that we have higher pain level thresholds. We see how that impacts uh, women in the healthcare system, how it impacts, uh, you know, birthing women when they are, you know, in hospital settings giving birth. But also uh, this article about this report says it's impacting what we're seeing around domestic violence because, again, women are taught to kind of suck it up and to be stronger. And that when they report violence, oftentimes the police treat them uh, again as if, uh, you know, they're, they're somehow that black women somehow have this greater threshold to pain and kind of minimize the violence that we experience. Absolutely. So interesting you brought this up because uh, about two years ago, my colleagues and I conducted a systematic review of the literature that actually examined um what we call the strong black woman schema, the, the the I am every woman, I can handle everything and I am strong and nothing bothers me. And what we found, we looked at what that looks like throughout the domestic violence service provision system, which is inclusive of the carceral system. It's inclusive of the mental health system, the physical health system, as well as um, the shelter system. And what we found is that oftentimes in the criminal legal system, what happens is when a woman calls the police, um, we found gross, um, uh, I don't know that I want to use that word, but we found that women were oftentimes disavowed when they called the criminal legal system, when they called for the police. Um, there was one instance where a woman called the police the police, instead of going into the house to save the woman, sat outside the house for 30 minutes listening to the woman get battered by her partner. And she literally crawled herself out of the out of the house. And that's when the police decided they were going to intervene. Um, and so we've had we have such gross inequities as it relates to that throughout the entire service provision system. What we also found is a lot of times within our communities, when we see the police shootings of unarmed Black men and unarmed Black women, there's a suspicion that is raised. And so when a woman decides, you know what, I've got to engage the criminal legal system because my life is literally on the line that is literally what's happening for a lot of Black women. They don't know. Um, they're trying to project um, when the partner and when their relationship is going to be at peak lethality. And unfortunately, that is not a good calculation for too many of our women because they're not able to calculate that. What we're finding at is that most of the women who are murdered are also killed by guns. And so what happens is, and 
altercation spirals out of control. Mm -hmm. And then next thing you know, a man has an access to a weapon, a firearm, and she's murdered. And once she's murdered, there is no taking things back, right? So it was one thing to beat a woman. And I'm, trust me, by no means, stretch of the imagination, condoning that. Um, but once that life, once that bullet has been ejected from that barrel, there it, there are no backseas, there are no take backs. Right. Um, and so we're finding that that is problematic throughout the entire domestic violence service provision system. Also keep in mind, the system was not designed for Black women. The domestic violence service provision system was de developed and designed for white women. And so if I'm going to a place that doesn't see me, if I'm going to a place that doesn't hear me, if I'm going to a place that doesn't even want to acknowledge my existence and that my pain is real, then I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go to my family members. I'm going to go to my friends. I'm going to, going to go to... Uh, community resources like members in my church, like people like Danielle and other community organizers who are known to do this work. That's who I'm trusting. I'm not trusting formal providers. What's the education process, Danielle, that's missing here? Uh, we often talk about education and awareness. And, uh, you know, from this report with these startling statistics, what do you think needs to be like the central priority in terms of educating Black women? Um, well, you know, I think it's the education of the entire Black community. And it's educating that this is happening, that Black women are six times more likely to be killed, you know, sharing the data. But then also talking about what domestic violence is. You know, it is, yes, it's physical, but it's also sexual, it's verbal, it's psychological actually breaking all of that down. Because um, oftentimes those other aspects of DV aren't really noticed, right? The, the verbal or the, um, uh, the, the emotional abuse and things like that. So educating on what it is. But then we also need education about why are we responding to it the way that we do? And, you know, at Connect Space and at Connect, um, we believe in having community dialogues where we're having these dialogues and talking about it. We bring, and we actually, we work with men. Um, and these are men uh, across the spectrum. Um, some may have harm. Some just want to do better. And, you know, they have their conversations and they're talking about what is our role as men in all of this. And it's primarily black and brown men. And they're talking about what is sexism? What is misogyny? What are the privileges that even men of color may have when it where when we're talking about within our own community construct, right? We understand that we don't have privileges in the broader outset, right? But just within our own black bubble, there mm -hmm. are some privileges and you know, and that and um it's reflected in how we process um uh domestic violence. So I think a key part of the education is know what it's about, know that it's happening, but we need to have dialogue in our community. Why are we processing this the way that we are? What are better ways that we can do this? You know, if uh, we know, as Dr. Uh, Waller mentioned, there's some hesitation at times to reach out to law enforcement. Okay, what are the alternatives? We know in New York um, connected a study and the city did a study a few years ago and they found that the first place 
that survivors want to go to when they're experiencing domestic violence is their faith community. And so that's how uh, our faith work established. So we're equipping congregations to be able to assist when someone reports what to do, not to say God hates marriage. Go back to your to your husband. Yeah, I'm don't sitting here thinking, up. as you're saying about faith-based communities, <laughs> right, I'm like, right. hmm, I don't know about that because mostly run by men, a lot of yes. older men that have yes. very misogynistic tendencies and a lot of control issues around women, particularly, you know, I don't know. I hear you, but I, I know of too many Black women who are stuck in violent relationships because they're pastors have told them that, you know, that, that the man hasn't, he hasn't cheated on you. He, you know, buys right. the groceries, he pays the bills, blah, blah, blah. And that somehow you are then supposed to endure the abuse because he does X, Y, Z. And for many mm -hmm. women, you know, that's the kind of pushback they get in our societies. They equate a good man with a quote unquote provider. So if he's paying the bills, if he's not cheating on you, maybe he is cheating on you, but he's not bringing it home. And people got all these weird standards about what a good man is. And women are often encouraged to stay in violent and abusive relationships because the standards of a so-called good man, which is, is very uh, troubling. And I do want to ask you, Dr. Wilder, uh, Danielle brought up the Jonathan Majors uh matter. We saw that played out in the media. Jonathan was charged, you know, with some uh, criminal charges for this altercation he had with his girlfriend or ex-girlfriend. The thing that struck me about that case, we got to hear that video or audio tape, I guess, while where he was comparing, uh, talking about wanting this woman to be more like Coretta Scott uh, King and Michelle Obama and recognizing what a great man he was. So I, I there's gaslighting, right? And then there's verbal abuse. And a lot of times I'll hear men say that, and women too, I shouldn't just say men, but people misinterpret uh, abuse and, and they downplay emotional abuse as not being abuse. So uh, when we come forward, I want you to help us understand what you heard in that audio tape. And then how do we know when something crosses the line from perhaps gaslight, or maybe gaslighting is a form of abuse in, in intimate partner relationships. But I, I think a lot of women in society struggle with that distinction. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Waller, the term gaslighting is a term that we've all gotten very familiar with, primarily, I'd say in the last year or so, in the context of politics and politicians who are gaslighting us, uh, either about their position on issues or, you know, even the state of certain situations. But in the Jonathan Majors, you know, debacle or, or case that we heard, domestic violence, I should call it, we heard him making these references to these prominent women, uh, Coretta Scott King, Michelle Obama. And the conversation I've been having with a lot of women is like, you know, people, what is gaslighting versus what is emotional or some kind of verbal abuse? What did you hear in that audio? And then how do we distinguish between gaslighting and what could be considered some form of emotional abuse? 
Actually, if we look at uh, what gaslighting is, gaslighting, the whole purpose of it is to control you. And control, it's the under underpins all forms of intimate partner violence victimization. Um, so if, if you're being gaslit, um, you're being probably being manipulated, you're being controlled. And that is consistent with the most dangerous forms of intimate partner violence victimization. Um, we oftentimes within our, in the Black community in particular, have a difficult time identifying what intimate partner violence is, what it is not, and what it looks like. And so just probably about uh, in the beginning of this month, I provided um, some training use vignettes uh, within a community-based organization. And after that incident, after providing those vignettes, there were people in the audience who came to me and says, wow, I didn't realize that was abuse. Um, the psychological harm, the stalking, I didn't realize that was abuse. Um, but what we know is that Black women are more likely to report that they have been psychologically harmed and or they've been stalked than any other form of victimization. They're not most likely to show that they've been physically abused. They're most likely to state that they have been psychologically abused and they have been stalked. And both of them are mechanisms of control. Is that what you see, Danielle, again, just, you know, in, in your day-to-day -day experiences with domestic violence victims that Black women in particular are more open about psychological abuse than they are about physical? Um, well, yeah, I, I've heard both. When I um, speak to groups in congregations, the psychological piece, it always gets brought up where people say, hey, we need our faith leaders to recognize this part also because we may not be getting hit, but this psychological abuse is causing me stress. Uh, you know, chronic, it, it will still, it will still manifest in the body. And so in a sense, it could still be physical, but, um, you know, we definitely hear this a lot and in, in the work that I do as well. And so when we talk about education, I, I think definitely one of the areas is, as you said, Dr. Waller, educating people on what domestic violence, particularly when it's not a hitting, you know, a beating, a stabbing, a shooting, you know, what is you know, give us a quick example of psychological abuse. Uh, one example of psychological abuse could be as simple as making you look bad with your friends, right? And and saying, you know what, you, you you're a fat slob. That is a well, that's name calling. That and is that a, is also a, a more form subtle of control. Right. But give us something more subtle, because I think everybody's going to say, OK, you call me a fat slob. We don't have a problem. OK, but give me something more subtle. You know, you would just look much better if you didn't wear dresses that show that kind of shape. Like your shape just doesn't look right in that dress. So it's interesting that you use that example. I have a friend whose daughter is dating someone in the entertainment business and she was going to a fancy Grammy uh, party with him. And he started telling her about her dress. Like, that's not appropriate. You should wear this. You need jewelry, blah, blah, blah. And her mom says, hey, he just is trying to help her step up her game. Instantly in my brain, I was like, that's a bit much. 
They've just known each other a couple of months. And I felt kind of like what you're saying, that that felt controlling to me. And I got pushback from her mom was like, no, he just wants her to look a certain way. And I did not, I felt instantly like that was so inappropriate and she better watch this dude because that could be the beginning. You know, not like you need to break up with him today, but you need, that was a red flag for me. So I think definitely we need more education in our community in general, women and men, about what that kind of controlling, those controlling comments that are more subtle, not the you look horrible, you're fat slob, but hey, I don't want you to wear this. You're going around my friends you know, like I need you to look a certain way. Like, you know, you need to be arm candy if you're going to be in the presence of my friends. And that was troubling to me. This is a very educated, smart, accomplished woman. It's like, you, I don't need you telling her how to dress. Like she can go to Instagram if she's having some issues. She don't need you to direct that traffic for her. So I, I do hope, where can we get this education? We're running out of time. Such an important conversation. Daniel, I know you're doing a lot of that in the work that you do in New York. My listeners, viewers are all over the country. Is there from either of you any place, websites or places where people can go? I'll start with you, Dr. Waller. Do you have any place to direct people? I actually direct them to to, to Danielle for now <laughs> um, because her that literally is my community go-to. Um, so you have Connect NYC. You have Ujimo that's also based in Washington, D.C., they do phenomenal work. Again, another national um, community-based organization um, for those who are interested in looking for more trainings for faith-based institutions. There is Connect, Connect Faith that Danielle heads up. And then there's also uh, Safe Havens that's based out of Boston, the Boston area, and has connections with Harvard University. So there are um, organizations that are strategically placed across the country that are phenomenal in the work that they do. Any resources for you, Daniel, that you want to share? Actually, she listed the, the pieces I was going to list up, as well as for another resource for the faith community is Faith Trust Institute. Okay. And, and if you are not on the East Coast, because you guys are talking about New York, Boston, you know, is there like a national hotline or, you know, someone in a small town, in a rural community? Absolutely. The the National DV hotline, um, you could actually obtain that hotline um, on online. Um, and that number is 1-800-799-7233. Again, that number is 1-800-799-7233. And if people want to connect and you know, they can do that either by phone or by by the Internet. No, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Dr. Waller, for making, you know, doing this study and publishing the results uh, and helping raise awareness about this really important issue. Thank you, Daniel, for the work you're doing on the ground there in New York City uh, and across the country. So needed. I just feel like this is an issue that we've got to normalize in our community because it's another one of those taboo topics can't talk about it. We have women in our family who are getting abused daily. We all know it, but it's hush hush. Uh, and we've got to find ways like mental health and other issues in our community to bring these conversations to the fore so that we can get people the help they need before they end up one of these statistics and one of these dead African-American women. Again, thanks to both of you. We are out of time, but we'll definitely continue to watch this 
uh, issue and a conversation I want to have more of this year. Uh, next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers in the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580.